Thanks for joining us here on the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Kendall Kearns, and I'm the student worship leader here at Rolling Hills. This week, we're diving into the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark as our sermon series, Masterclass, continues. Jesus calls us to follow his example of service to others. Jesus tells James and John that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If our God lives a life in service to others, so should we. Now let's hear today's teaching about how we can live out this call to serve. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm super excited to be with you again this morning. The past two weeks, I guess, uh, yeah, maybe past two weeks, uh, I was not able to, or wasn't up here, was here, but not up here. And so uh, it's, I'm kind of getting back in the, the groove of this. So this may take a long time, uh, extra time this morning, extra grace from, I'm just joking. I'm not going to go extra time. I, I promise. Um, but excited to be, to, to be with you and to open up God's word. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 10 as we continue through our masterclass series. And, and this morning looking at, at the life and the teachings of Jesus so that we our actions and our attitudes begin to look more and, uh, and, and we begin to live more like Jesus uh, in, in regular life. And, uh, you know, at, just as a, as a side note, before we jump into that, into Mark chapter 10, you know, this week was, or this, this week was a, a historic week for our nation. Uh, and I, this is not a political moment, but it is a moment that I, I do want to celebrate just something that God has done and just say in, in the Bible, we know that God is the author of life and he's the, he's the author and protector of life. And so uh, we celebrate those things. And we, we, in Mark chapter 10, that we're studying this week, Jesus blesses the children. He talks about protecting women. Uh, and so we as disciples are called to love and serve and do the same things that Jesus did. Uh, and so we're, the, it, that historic moment uh, is one that honestly I doubted would ever happen. Uh, but it, it's a moment not to sell. It is a moment to celebrate, but not to gloat. And, and so a, as a church in this moment, and let's just say this clearly, as a church, we want to be the church in this moment in history. And the best way to do that is not to gloat in, in, our, in our rejoicing, but to realize that what Christ called us to is to serve and to sacrifice. And at this moment, there, there are social workers in the foster care system, adoption agencies, crisis pregnancy centers that will need support and help more than ever. And for the church to be the church with, and, and for the world to see the church being the church, it, it's not that we gloat, it's that we serve and that we serve those who are in need. Uh, and, so, and, and, and do what our words have said for a long time and actually um, serving those people in the name of Jesus. And so that just as a moment, uh, and then we'll move on. But I, before we move on, I do want to just pause and, and pray for our morning and uh, God's word as we open it up together uh, this morning. So just pray with me. Jesus, we, we, we thank you for today and for the opportunity to gather in this place the ability to, as the church, gather, the freedom to do that. God, we recognize that all over the world, that is not a freedom that every believer has. And so we celebrate that freedom, but we also recognize that it is a gift from you. And we pray that we would not 
misunderstand that gift, that we would understand the, your grace in that moment. And God, just in general, God, in where we sit as a nation, God, we thank you uh, for the protection of life. Uh, but we don't ask, we've not asked for protection of life just in the womb, but protection all the way through life. And so, God, we pray that the church today would be the church and that in our celebration, we would not gloat, we would not um, be rude in the way that we celebrate, but, Father, that we would point to you and, and we would be the church that serves and sacrifices and steps into the needs that are brought about uh, in the world around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first, that you love us best, and that you love us always. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 10, again, is where we're, we're looking at the life and the teachings of Jesus as we work through uh, this series called Masterclass, that our actions and our attitudes, uh, that we, they would begin to look more like Jesus and we would live more like Jesus in daily life. And so uh, it, the reality that we're over halfway through this series is, is pretty staggering, that we're in 16 chapters, that we're in chapter 10. But what's really incredible in this in where we are in chapter 10 is that this is the last group of teaching, public teaching that Jesus does and the last healing miracle that Jesus performs in the book of, in the gospel of Mark. And so after this, as we kind of shift gears, there's a, there's a major shift that happens at the end of chapter 10 here as we move to chapter 11. And, there, and it's a couple times in, in the gospel of John specifically that Jesus answers uh, there are these moments where, where people are, are either trying to take him or his mother, Mary, asks, if you go to the book of John, she, she asks him to perform a miracle at a wedding that they're at. And his, his answer is, why do you involve me? It says actually, in, in, I think in Matthew, it says, why do you involve me, woman? Which sounds really uh, like harsh, but it's not a promise the way that he says it. Uh, Jesus would not be rude to his mom. But he, he says, why do you involve me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. And if you go in, in, in John chapter 7, verse 30, is that there's a group of people that are trying to seize him because he's declared that he is the Son of God and they want to seize him. And on the, on the cusp of a mountain, on the, on the edge of a, a cliff there, they try to lay hands on him and they can't lay hands on him. And it says because it's not his hour yet. Paul writes in Romans 5, chapter 6, it says, You see that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And and this morning, as we finish chapter 10, we're on the edge, on the eve of just that right time. When, when we move out of chapter 10 into chapter 11, we move into what we call the Passion Week, when Jesus has the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And just as we, as we park here in chapter 10, just the realization that we're truly on the eve of the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth. What, Paul, or what Mark records for us as Peter trans, translates these things for us and, and Mark records them. And, and we're going to work through this whole passage, but I want to really dig in on the last seven verses and the last miracle and miraculous healing of the blind man named Bartimaeus. And I'm going to go and tell you that all week long as I've read this passage and I've said Bartimaeus and I've said Bartimaeus and I've read it out loud, I told Josh this morning that every time I look at this name, I want to say Bartholomew for some reason. So at some point, if I say Bartholomew, you can laugh and that's fine. But know that I mean Bartimaeus because I don't know. I, I'm sure I'm going to screw this up at some point this morning. So Bart, Bartimaeus is the guy that we're going to study at the end. But we're going to work through the whole passage. And we're going to start in verse 1. It says this. 
Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, the crowd of people came to him. As was his custom, he taught them. And some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus says back, he says, it was because of your hard hearts, because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied. But in the beginning of God's of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man would leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two would become one flesh, and so they would no longer be two, but one. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, I, honestly, as we were preparing for this, I was like, can we skip the first 12 verses on Sunday? But I, I can't, you know, like it's here. And so to skip the first 12 is obvious that I don't want to approach a tough subject. And this is a tough subject, right? And the reality that, that it's here means that I feel like we have to address it. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I just I want to say what what I believe is is Jesus wants the audience there and for us to hear this morning. And the first thing is this: that God created God is the creator and the designer of marriage. He's the creator and designer of marriage, and obedience to God's design is God's desire, and where we find the greatest delight. So just the, the, the reality that, that this marriage is his design, it's his desire that we are a walk in obedience, and when we walk in obedience, we find the delight that marriage brings to our hearts. But we live in a broken world, and because of sin, divorce is an issue that's long been a part of our world. It, this, it didn't start in the 80s. I know that we look at history and we start acting like in the 50s everything went to pot after, you know, Woodstock or whatever. That's not true because it's right here in Scripture. The conversations that we're having today, Jesus was having then. And so he, it, it didn't start today. It didn't start in the 60s. But, but we live in a world that is broken by sin and divorce has affected almost everybody that we know at some level and left a long line of hurt behind it. And, and the arguments about the appropriate reasons for divorce are not new. And biblically, the biblical perspective and parameters are clear as you work through Scripture. But, but one of the things that are happening right here, the Pharisees, is they bring there's two schools of thought in the Pharisees. One, that there's the parameters that the Bible kind of lays out that, that Moses gave for those reasons. And then there's another teacher, the rabbis that the Pharisees would have followed, that said, hey, just for any reason, you can leave your wife. So these same arguments that happen today are happening then. And Jesus gives the, he says that Moses gives the provisions because their hearts were hard. It was a protection. What Moses gave as a protection was, was as a provision was more of a protection, not a subscript, not a, not a um, affirmation, a positive affirmation of it. And so even as we think about what happens here and, and, and what Jesus is saying, what, what God lays out and what Jesus is affirming is protection for women. 
to be truthful, like what you see here is a protection because a lot of what would happen is that Jewish men would just write their wives a certificate of divorce and send them on their way. For no reason, she made them unhappy, leave. And then they would have no recourse. They didn't have, any, they didn't have a, a way to, to make money. They didn't have a way to survive in the culture. And so the, the reality is that Jesus was holding high marriage because it was designed, but also so that they wouldn't, so that women were protected in, in the culture. And, and here, here's what I want you to hear, the last thing, that a godly response within the church and for Christians is for one, us to, to celebrate and to value and to uphold the dignity and beauty of the design that God intended marriage for. And at the same time, for us to eliminate the shame and the stigma that is sadly felt by so many who have experienced divorce or been hurt by it. And, and to use somebody else's words, that we, we mingle the call to obedience with the tears of compassion and the truth of God's restoration on this topic. And I want to say one more, that, that for, for, those of, for those of us who are married or hope to be married, that we recognize that an ounce of provision is worth a pound of cure. That if you're married, listen, couples who are married, that we understand that prevention is an active battle without which there's almost, there's almost certain a passive defeat. That we are, we are actively battling for our marriage. And if we're not and we're passive, then there's, there's defeat and there's, there's turmoil in that relationship. And if you're a single person looking to or longing to be married, that your active battle is to live a holy life, as Paul writes in Romans 12, Romans 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Verse 2, listen, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The reality is we can't skip over this true, this passage but it is not something that, it's not an anvil that we, or a weight that we lay on. It's a celebration of the beauty, a recognition of a, a broken world, and the compassion of Christ and the truth of God's restoration. And what Jesus upholds is the beauty of marriage, and he calls us to faithfulness in it. Moving on, as you move to chapter, verse 13, it says this, that people were bringing children to Jesus, for him to place his hands on them, and the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus saw this, and he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly I tell you that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arm, and he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. And again, what we're, we're just kind of kind of work through this passage, all of, all, of, all of these verses, and just take some stops and, and look at what they said. In this passage, in, in this, these, from 13 to 16, what Jesus wants us to hear, what he's teaching us is talking about God's, God's deep love for children. And that we make every effort, and as a body, as, as the people of God, as Jesus' children, as, as Jesus' followers, that we make every effort to, to bring our kids to Jesus. As parents and adults, we lead them to Jesus. We love them to, to Jesus. Then it's the Father's desire for us to, to lead them 
for us to have a faith like children, that, that a childlike faith is celebrated by Jesus. And, and, and it's not an immature faith. And what, the difference between what he's talking, it's not an immature that, that we're not growing in our faith, but it's the reality that we are dependent, that we remain utterly dependent on him. That we're not self-reliant, but rather we, we go to him and recognize that he is our source and we have nothing. But he is the, that's what he's celebrating when he talks about the children's, their faith and the, our faith being like children. And I love this, that, that what he does is he, the father blesses, he doesn't babysit. Right? When, he, when Jesus puts them in his lap, he doesn't, it's not a babysitting service. It's not, hey, let the parents go and, and hang out and worship for a minute so, that, we can, so that, that they can worship and not be distracted by kids. He's blessing them. He's putting his hands on them to say, I'm, I'm blessing them. He's, he's teaching them. He, he, he's pouring life into them. And, and, and that's why I love our family ministry so much. Because I recognize that what happens in, in our kids' ministry and student ministry and preschool ministry is not babysitting. It's planting seeds of the gospel, realizing that God can do an incredible work in the lives of our kids from rocking babies in the, in the, in the bed baby room, if it's a room or hallway, whatever it is back there right now, to kids that are hanging out and, and our older kids, our student ministry. It's not, it's not babysitting. It's pouring the life of Jesus into them recognizing that Christ can do an amazing work in their lives right where they are and that it's important to Jesus that we have. It's not, we don't do these things so that parents are not distracted in worship. We do this. It's a central part of our, it's essential to who we are as a church and why we put so much emphasis as a church on the next generation is because Christ puts so much emphasis in these passages. He moved to chapter, uh, verse 17 through 31, and it, it talks about a man who comes up to, to Christ, and, and, he, and he, says, he asks a question. He says, a rich young ruler, and he comes to Christ, and he asks the question, what do I do to inherit salvation? And he has this conversation with Jesus, and he, says, and he responds. Jesus says, you obey the commandments. He says, I've done all that. And he says, well, I've, since I've kept those, Jesus says, one thing that you lack. In verse 21, he says, go sell everything and give to the poor, and you have treasures in heaven, and then come and follow me. And it says that the man's face fell, and he was sad because he had a lot. And he said the disciples, after they finished, that the disciples asked some questions, and he said, how can, it, how can someone enter the, the kingdom of heaven? And, and it says what is, it's more difficult for a man that is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eyes, the eye of a needle. And so they, there's a question, who can do it? And, and Jesus' response is what's impossible with man it's possible with God. In this conversation that he has, they, they leaves in the, 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 the ending of this, verse 30, it says, not verse 30, verse 29, truly, truly, I tell you, no man has left. Peter asked this question. No man has left his home, his brothers, his sisters, his mother, his father, his children, or fields for me in the gospel and fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers, sisters and mothers, children and fields, along with persecution in the age to come, eternal life. In verse 31, but many who are first will be last and last first. And then if you look at the story, this guy, he goes, he asks the right questions, he goes to the right person, he gets the right answers, but his response is that he's sad and he leaves because he wanted to figure out how to earn salvation. 
He wanted to say, I, I have, I, what do I do to earn this salvation or to earn eternal life? And what Jesus says, it's not about earning, it's about you releasing control. And, and it's the contrast of what happened just before as he contrasts what the kids come to him with nothing and Jesus receives them. This man comes to him with everything and Jesus says, no, you got to go get rid of those things. And come to me with nothing. And sometimes the reality is that what we hold on to the tightest might be the thing that's holding us back from us getting what we desire the most. I mean, this man wanted something that was good. What he, what he sought after, what he came to Christ for was something that was good. It was, it was eternal life. It's not something that, that we would reject anybody for seeking after. But he came after it in the wrong way because he thought that he could earn it with his actions or his, his possessions. And sometimes what we have to realize is that we hold on to these things so tightly. How his stuff and it bro- it, how, how when we hold on to these things tightly, sometimes it keeps us from receiving the things that we're actually desiring the most. And, and this is another place where Jesus talks about this or he kind of ushers in this upside down kingdom where he, he's teaching us because of the promises that we, the promises that we leave behind things so we hold on the things that we hold on to tightly. And he, t- he says that we're leaving things that, that are leaving the little so that we gain a lot. When, this man, he's, he, even what he has, and when he leaves it, he's, it, it's little compared to what he gains. When he says to the disciples, no man has left father, mother, all these things. He says, but when you leave those things, it's just a little and you're gaining so much more. You're leaving the momentary to gain the eternal he continues as, you, as we work through the passage. He, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and he's leading the disciples, and they were astonished, and they were afraid, and he takes the 12 aside, and he tells them again that he's going to die and how that's going to happen. And again, they misunderstand, and they don't, they don't get it. They, they miss the, what Jesus is, is teaching them. It's the third time that he's told them that he's going to die. And it seems like Jesus is making the point to the disciples that, or to us as you read that, that though the disciples are physically, they have their sight. Spiritually, they're blind. And while Bartimaeus, who we're going to meet in just a second, he's physically blind, but spiritually he has sight. If you keep going, verse 35, it says that James and John, the son of Zebedee, they come to, the chief, to, come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want you to do something. He says, what do you want me to do? And they, they respond, we, we want to be at your right hand and your left in your glory. And so he answers them and, and, and he says, you're not going to, that's, that's not for me to do. But you realize that what happens is on the cusp of him saying, I'm going to die, they kind of pass by that and forget all of those things. They say, they come to him and ask him for a position. What they want is a position in his kingdom. And they, what they're, they're going to stop at nothing to be at the top. And even in Matthew, it tells us that as their mom comes and asks, which is kind of funny to me as you think about you're asking your mom to come ask Jesus for you to do something. But they're missing the whole point. Again, the disciples missing the point is, is, is just what's happened throughout the, throughout the book of Mark. As we've seen it, they're looking for this position. And it's hard for me to fault them because I realize that as I point the finger at them, so many fingers are pointing back at me. And, but here again, Jesus comes with this upside-down kingdom. If you go to verse 41, he says, When the ten heard this, they became indignant. They were mad at, at, at James and John. And they called them together. Jesus called them together and says this, that you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them. Their higher officials 
exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. And whoever wants to become first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, not, did not come to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this passage, just right here, these, these verses, is really the centerpiece of all of Mark's gospel. In, in the whole book, it's, it's, this is, is, is what Jesus values the most. It's what the reality that Jesus came to be, to serve and to be a sacrifice. It's not that this is, as King of kings and Lord of lords, this is kind of the thesis statement for everything that we've seen Jesus do all throughout the book of Mark. He's come to serve and to be a sacrifice, and that he's modeled this. And, and to grow as disciples of Christ and to grow in, in our relationship with Christ, what Jesus is telling us is to grow as a servant, to abandon the entitlement, to lay aside our own desires and to take up the desires and the, his will and, and, and the desires of, of Christ and, and his interests rather than our own, to abandon our own desires. And it's the contrast, again, of these men asking for a position. And he's saying, no, it's not about your position. It's about being a servant. That I came not to be served, but to serve. And it's something that we shouldn't pass by so quickly, because if you think about what Jesus says, that at the end of time, when we go to be with him, what, what does he say to those who approach him? He says, well done, my good and faithful CEO. Is that, is that what he says? They say, well done, my good and faithful student. He, the, there's, there's nothing else that fits into that phrase than servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why Paul introduces himself so many times when he writes, when he writes letters to the churches. He introduces himself as a servant of Christ because being a servant is what Christ most values in, his, in the lives of his disciples. And growing in your relationship with God is evident by your willingness to serve. And July 17th, when we have our serve fair, the, I, we're going to come back to this because the reality is that he's called us to be servants. I read a, a I can't remember where it was, but it was the, read through a, uh, illustration of a, a guy going to a tattoo artist you know he's he's a hipster and really wants a cool tattoo and I do too but I couldn't figure out I can't figure out what I want forever you guys who have them I'm jealous but he goes to the tattoo artist and he says I want I want a tattoo that really identifies somebody who's growing in their relationship with Christ and there's you know like they're really they're living for Jesus and they're growing their relationship and so he's like I'll do whatever you want to and he looks down later and it's it's the guy it's a stack of chairs and a guy moving chairs in a building because he's serving. It was cool to me. Thank you for the laughter. <laughs> I thought about it. I was like, that's good. But, you know, you have this image of what it looks like to be growing in your relationship with Christ. And the reality is what it looks like the most is that you've laid your rights down your entitlement, your desires, and you've picked up his desires. You've, you've said, I'm not going to live for me. I'm going to live for him. And what he desires are going to become my desires. And what Jesus desires us to do is lay our lives down as servants, to be, to be sacrificial with the things that we have. And so you see that these disciples are physically, they see, but spiritually they're blind. They don't see what Jesus is doing. And then we move in verse 46 to the one who's physically blind, but spiritually he sees. And if you have your notes, we're, we're going to run through these just really quick as we 
wrap this up. Because I think what, he, what happens right here in this last healing miracle for us is so important. Verse 46, it says this, And then he came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, Tim, yeah, Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside begging. And when he heard that Jesus is, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, "Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me!" And many rebu- rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But they, he shouted all the more, "Son of David, have mercy on me!" And first thing that we see is that there's a beggar's plea. That Bartimaeus, is a, he's a beggar, right? And society has very little worth. He, he can't work for himself. He can't do things for himself. And so he's reliant on the kindness of others for survival. As, as he sits on the side of the road, he, there's, this crowd is growing. And maybe he thinks, okay, this could be a good day as the crowd grows. But then he realizes that something else is going on. He asks what's happening. And, and they find out that Jesus is coming. And he certainly has heard about who Jesus is. Right? He's heard that Jesus has been in other places and he's healed people. He, he knows that, that Jesus is one who's given sight to the blind. And, and he knows the stories of what it means that, that this man has given sight to the blind. And so he recognizes who Jesus is. And with all of, the, all of the breath in his lungs, he cries out in this moment of urgency. He cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. If you're filling in notes, the the three things under beggar's plea, that he understands his condition, he recognizes Christ, and he pleads for mercy. That he understands his condition, he recognizes Christ, and he pleads for mercy. And what we have to understand, what's simple for us to understand that we we can't pass by in this passage, is that the first step of for all of us in our relationship with Christ, not only for our beginning, but for every step in that relationship, for always constantly coming back to this reality of recognizing our condition, that we are desperate and blind, that we are we are just like Bartimaeus, that we are helpless on the side of the road, desperately in need of the kindness of someone to fix with the problem on the inside of us. And not only that we recognize our own condition, but that secondly, we recognize that Jesus is our only hope. With Bartimaeus, he recognized that Jesus is who who the promised one. He calls him the son of David. Nobody sat down with him and taught him these things. He recognizes that Jesus, blind as he is, his heart is seen clearly. Spiritually, he sees clearly that this is the one who came to rescue. So he cries out for mercy because mercy is the only way that he receives life. And we all recognize We abandon our pride and recognize the urgency of the moment. We find ourselves in the same place, crying out with pleas for mercy. And what happens next is so incredible because there's a Savior who pauses. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and called him. And so they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you and throwing his cloak aside. Literally, he, he, his cloak, everything that he has, he throws it aside. It's an abandonment of himself. He throws it aside and he runs to Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, teacher, he says, I want to see. Listen, if you're filling in notes, Christ hears the cry above the crowd. Christ hears the cry above the crowd. Christ calls the hurting to himself. 
and Christ, Christ restores the broken. I think some of us need to hear this this morning, that Jesus hears your cry above the crowd. You know, what, what, the, the picture of what's happening as he's moving from Jericho into Jerusalem is that this is the beginning of them recognizing and celebrating him. It, it, and, and in this room, I know that we sing songs and it's loud. And some of you are standing here and, and you look around and you see people singing songs and maybe they have their hands raised or they, they look like from your perspective that they're into what's going on. And all you're doing on the inside is crying, God, I just need something because obviously I'm not in the same place place as that person is. And what I want you to hear is that above the crowd, above the noise, above all of those things, that Jesus hears your cry. As as there's people pressing in from every side, wanting something or wanting just to be near him, he hears your cry as you feel so far away and desperate and in need. He hears your cry and he calls you to himself. He stops and he's willing to not only, he's not only able, but he's willing to hear you and to have mercy on you and to heal your brokenness as he, draw, as he draws near to you and answers your cry. Finally, in verse, the final verse of chapter 10, there's the restored pursuit. Verse 52, it says this, Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He's given sight by Jesus, or given sight by Christ, and he gives his heart to Christ. He's given sight by Christ. He gives his heart to Christ. This is the beginning. It's not just that he received this miracle. Plenty of people throughout Scripture, throughout the the Gospels, they receive, and it doesn't tell us anything about what happens afterwards. In in Matthew, it tells us that there's there's multiple blind men here, and he's the only one that returns back to him to thank him. When he, when he gives the instructions. So there's plenty of people who receive God's miracle, but they don't follow Jesus. They don't give their hearts to him. Bartimaeus not only receives sight, but he gives his heart to Jesus and he follows him. He experiences grace and gladly followed Jesus. Bartimaeus was healed in this moment completely, his eyes full sight. A blind beggar, he, he, he brought nothing to Jesus. He could never have done it on his own. He could never have earned it. He was blind, but now he could see. He experienced grace from Jesus, and it made him grateful to Jesus. And he began to follow Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And by grace, he had gone from beggar to disciple. And scholars that, that have studied, studied the history of the church and, and early church teaching uh, teaches that, that Bartimaeus would have followed Jesus, that he was with the disciples through the Passion Week. He was there with the disciples and the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and that he would have seen Jesus go through the things that he, w- that he went through, that not only was he there for the Passion Week, but he becomes a figure in the church of Jerusalem as it's established in Acts. And James, the brother of Jesus, pastors this church that Bartimaeus, this blind man that was on the side of the road in Jericho that received sight, continued to walk with Jesus. Grace, great, grateful for Jesus' healing in his life, but he became a servant of Jesus and a follower and a disciple. As the band comes back up, we're, the reality for us is that Bartimaeus is really a picture of a clear picture of discipleship. 
that he recognizes his inability and he trusts Jesus to be the one that gives him, the one to give him God's gracious mercy. And when he could see clearly, he began to follow Jesus. He began to give, he gave his life to him and served him with his life. And, and like, like this blind man, until Christ gives us sight, we remain blind. We all have a deep longing in our hearts that, that, that are broken by sin. And until Christ makes us whole, that longing remains. We're hopeless and powerless until Christ hears our cry above the crowd and pauses and invites us to come, that, we, that we're all beggars with nothing to bring to Jesus until Christ makes us his disciples. The reality is that Jesus still pauses. He still invites the blind beggars to come to him. He still graciously restores the broken. He still rescues the lost. He still redeems the desperate. The reality is that no matter where you are this morning, maybe you have never trusted in Christ and, and, and truly you sit in the room as, as Bartimaeus on the side of the road with nothing and you need to hear the cry that Jesus is saying, come to me. And you Bring, your, bring all of your sorrows and troubles to him and you experience that new life, new healing. Some of us just need to be reminded that that's, that invitation is where we began new life and, and like Bartimaeus, we continue to follow him, continue to serve him, to lay aside our own desires and pick up his as a servant that, it, that right now growing in our faith is growing as a servant. We're going to sing a song that you'll, you'll recognize as we just celebrate God's amazing grace because it was his grace that rescued Bartimaeus. It's his grace that rescued any of us who've put our faith in him. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning and want to talk about that, I'm going to move to the back of the room as we sing this song. I'd love to have a conversation, the beginnings of a conversation with you about what it means to come to Christ and trust him for salvation. So let's pray and then we'll sing this song together. Jesus, you are good to us. And when we are hopeless, you enter our hopelessness with hope. When we are beggars, Father, you come and you rescue us when we have nothing to offer. It is your amazing grace that has transformed any of us from beggars to disciples. And so as we sing this song, let it on the one hand be a rehearsal, a reminder of the gospel that rescued, rescues us and has rescued many in this room. And God, if not, then let it be a prayer or let it be the cry that your amazing grace would rescue any who have not put their faith in you this morning. And that this morning, Father, by your grace that the blind would see. That you would heal brokenness. Restore the lost. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. 
Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time and God bless.